This morning we're going to start a new series that we're calling Rediscovering Jesus. What you find is that there are times when people try to package Jesus and put him into these little boxes that we create. And so we're going to look at a number of scenarios in the Gospels where there were clashes that Jesus had with some of the religious leaders and others, and it usually had to do with when people were trying to fit Jesus into some narrow box that wasn't who he was. This is one of those. It's from Matthew chapter 12. Let me read for you our gospel portion for this morning. Matthew 12, 1 through 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went to their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift him out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Let's pray for a moment. Lord God, thank you for gathering us here this morning. We have begun to worship you and to call on your name. We've invited your spirit to work in our lives and to break down the walls that we sometimes create. We've watched three people profess their faith in you and be baptized, symbolizing that they've died to the old way of life and they're living as new creatures in Christ. Help them each to grow in that faith and grow in the knowledge and allow this particular day and and their baptisms to uh, become events and moments that not only crystallize their faith but that strengthen it and that serve as powerful reminders for years to come that you are with them and that you are watching over them and that your grace has supplied all they need. Lord, as we look into your word, we pray that you'll give us insight in knowing how to live our lives well and knowing how to navigate our faith in a constantly changing world and how to live with grace, focusing on the major things that are important to you and not getting bogged down into small and little details that sometimes obscure our faith. I pray that you will continue to give us hearts to call out for you and to find your rest, the rest that satisfies the mind and the heart and the deepest parts of the soul. So guide us in this time. Through Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was about 14, my parents took my brother and me for a week at a cabin that they had rented at a Christian conference center up in New Hampshire. 
And there are several wonderful things about this particular campground. My, my dad loved the cabins and the way that they were nestled among these large pines. And some of the activities, we liked the hiking and the outdoor stuff that we got to do. My dad in particular loved this particular conference ground because every morning and every evening they had these Bible lectures. And so whatever else was going on in the day, he would make sure he was there for both parts of it. But for me, that week didn't go so well. Now, the reason was, I was 14, and you think of that time, it was about 1973, and I had long hair. My hair was down to about my shoulders. And I, my brother and I, on the first day, went to swim in this Olympic-sized swimming pool that they had in the middle of the conference grounds, and they kicked me out of the pool because my hair was too long. The complaint was that my hair would somehow get loose and it would clog the filters, and so that would ruin the pool. So we talked about it as a family, and I didn't really want one, but that night my uncle gave me a haircut. I didn't want to get it chopped off, but he took a good couple of inches off, and the next day my brother and I went back to the pool, and they kicked me out again. Said it was still too long. So we talked about it again that night as a family. The third day I went back, and I grabbed my mom's flowery bathing cap, and I put it on and jumped in the pool, and they kicked me out again. So that night, we knew something when we got together as a family and we talked about it. This was not about hair clogging the drain. Somebody had made a moral decision about the length of hair that boys should have in the mid-1970s, and uh, it was more about the little things that they had determined were vastly important. I want you to hold on to that concept about little things, because we're going to talk about little things and big things that are related to what was going on here with Jesus and the disciples and the Pharisees in the midst of that conflict that we just read about from Matthew chapter 12. The lesson that I learned looking back on that scenario is that sometimes really small things reveal the condition of the heart, and sometimes they also reveal how we regard Jesus as well. So this morning, we're beginning this new series that we're going to look at for the next several weeks called Rediscovering Jesus. It's not that Jesus is lost, but sometimes we have lost sight of who Jesus really is in the midst of our attempts to create little boxes that fit our world or our perception. We try to, try to squeeze Jesus into those boxes. And we'll find that people encounter that conflict, and they are forced to either change the way that they're looking at their faith or the way they're looking at Jesus, or they're going to resist Jesus in those moments. Now, here's the dangerous thing about this particular series. We may find that we have tried to recreate Jesus and fit him into our own boxes as well. What will we do if we find that that is true? So let me say good morning to my North River friends. I'm glad that you're here, glad that uh, you've chosen to be with us today. Each week we are trying to create a safe place for those who are coming back to church or back to Jesus in order to explore difficult questions about the Bible and about faith with us. Whether you are just getting started or whether you've been with us for decades, we're all seeking to deepen our understanding of the true Jesus as we find Him in the Bible and as He draws us closer and closer to Himself in our daily lives. So if you're brand new to all of this, you're in a really good place and this is a really good time to get started. A wonderful part of our congregation is with us online today, and so let me welcome those of you who are online as well. If you're traveling or you've moved farther away and you wanted to stay connected to North River, or you don't feel safe enough in person yet to come and to join us here in Pembroke, 
Thank you for taking the time to find this link and for making this a priority in your day today. I hope you will take the next step as well by letting us get to know you in some way. You can fill out a connection card here if you go over to the to Welcome Center after the service. Or you, if you're online and watching from our church online platform, click on the link that, that says connection card and fill that out. Or you can do something old-fashioned. You can go to our website, northriverchurch.org, and if you scroll down to where it says plan a visit, underneath that plan a visit, there's a connection card where you can uh, give us some information about who you are so that we can begin the conversation. And if that fails you, you can do something really old-fashioned, and you can send me an email, paul at northriverchurch.org. We'd love to start the conversation with you. As we learn about Jesus, our topic this morning is not who you want him to be. And what the Pharisees discovered on that particular day was that Jesus was not who they wanted him to be. He didn't fit into their box. Here's the big idea for this morning. When Jesus refuses man-made boxes that we create, we gravitate either toward faith or frustration. We're going to come closer to him and change our perception, or we're going to be frustrated and push him away. The question behind all this is, why do we get to that point at the end of the passage where the Pharisees, very early in the ministry of Jesus, began to plot to kill Jesus? Now, notice what had happened. They'd argued for the legitimacy of the box that they'd created for their faith. They turned a blind eye toward the good that Jesus was doing that day, which also exposed the hardness of their hearts, and they rejected Jesus because he didn't fit the box that they tried to put him in. Let's look a little bit closer at all that. First, we see the conflict over the little thing. Verse 1 says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Here's the conflict. What happens in the grain fields? His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. The concept of the Sabbath first shows up in the Exodus period in the Bible. Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and they were fed by God as he provided manna miraculously, this bread from heaven, every morning. Manna was like a wafer-like form of bread that fell with the dew every morning. And during this time, God provided for his people. They were allowed to go out and collect a day's worth of food first thing in the morning. If they tried to collect more and kept it overnight towards the next day, it would all go rotten really fast. But a provision was made so that they didn't have to work on Saturday, the Sabbath. So on Friday, they were allowed to collect two days worth of this manna, and it would last for two days in that situation. The reason that they were not to work on on the Sabbath and they were not to collect food on the Sabbath, it was a recognition that God had already provided, and they didn't have to work for it they could rest. That's really the principle that's running behind the Sabbath day concept. The roots of the Sabbath had actually already been in place since the time of the creation. So in Genesis 2, we're told that God rested on the seventh day after working for six days. He wasn't tired. He didn't need a break. He chose to rest. And he set this pattern that he would explain later. So when the Ten Commandments came through Moses, resting on the Sabbath was one of those Ten Commands. The principle of Sabbath rest became a part of the way of life for the people of Israel for centuries afterward. There were always two factors that were in play 
in regard to the Sabbath. The first was the work-rest factor, where people remember that God is our provider, so on the seventh day they rested from their labors. The second factor was the worship factor, where they would take time to come together as a community of faith and worship God on that day. By the time that Jesus showed up and took on human life, the religious leaders of the day had complicated all of this. They wanted so badly to keep people from breaking the command to keep the Sabbath day holy that they decided to create a hedge around it. And that hedge was man-made rules that were designed to protect people so they'd bump against those rules before ever breaking the original command itself. Well, by the time of Jesus, that had developed into 39 categories of work that should not be done. Calvary Chapel Newburgh pastor Tom Fuller explains these categories. He said they included chain stitching, weaving, unraveling, selecting, erasing, knotting, finishing, and then a whole list of things that were considered work at that time. The more people adhered to these rules, the more they were seen as good and holy people based on performance. So, on that particular Sabbath day when Jesus' disciples started rubbing the heads of grain after picking them as they're walking through the fields and then popping them into the mouths, they broke the man-made rules and they were reprimanded. Luke points, this out, points out in his version of this that part of what they did was pick the grains which was allowed by the Old Testament scriptures. And they were allowed to eat them, but they claimed that the rubbing of the grain heads together in order to separate the chaff from the grain itself was work. This was the little thing. The disciples' act of rubbing heads of grain on Saturday. They considered that work which violated the Sabbath. And in the minds of the Pharisees, their rules were as important as the original law itself. With this little thing, they were trying to fit Jesus into their box of tradition in the, and the rules that they had created. You got that picture? This is the little thing, the rubbing of the grains and then popping them into their mouths. Second, notice that the little thing kept them from seeing the bigger thing. Verse 3, he answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? They entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or... Haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath day in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus' problem was, with their rules, they had condemned his disciples who were innocent of wrongdoing. And then he makes a declaration, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. All right, let's break this part down. First, Jesus led them to biblical examples that didn't fit their box. He goes to 1 Samuel and he tells a story of when David was not yet king, but he'd been anointed as the future king. He and his men ate consecrated bread in the worship center at Shiloh. David had been anointed as the future king while Saul was still on the throne and he was being hunted by King Saul who was insanely jealous of David. They came to the worship center, and they were famished. They'd been on the run, and they grabbed the bread that was a part of the worship celebration in that Old Testament era. Only the priests were allowed to eat the bread. But since David was being hunted for being God's man, this provision was allowable for him to take in Jesus' eyes. 
Then he brings up an, another scenario. He brings up that priests work, and their, their duties primarily fell on the Sabbath, and yet they're innocent from uh, breaking the, this command and for violating the Sabbath. Even though they're working, they're considered innocent. Both examples involve activity around the worship center and activity that was allowable on those days. So Jesus explained those examples, and then he applied what I would call the Sabbath principle. The principle is that God loves mercy more than sacrifice. Now think, that, think of this. In the Old Testament era, people were forgiven for their sins temporarily when they brought an animal to the worship center, and the animal was sacrificed by a priest, and so blood was shed. And there was a, that temporary sacrifice was received as something that covered their sins for a short period of time. We know from the New Testament that all of these sacrifices pointed forward to God's ultimate solution of our sin problem in sending His Son who would once and for all deal with our sins by shedding His own blood on the cross. So the temporary things were in place then, but they pointed to the future settlement, the permanent solution. Jesus then notes that He Himself is greater than the temple, and He says, here's the principle that God really operates by, that He desires mercy, not sacrifice, that God desires mercy from His people, not more and more sacrifice, because one day the sacrifices would end. And then Jesus announced something, the bold statement that's more important than all of this, that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He used the term the Son of Man, that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Son of Man was a term that pointed to the promised person that God was going to send in the future. It was used 107 times by the Old Testament prophets. Jesus was letting them know that not only did He come as the prophetic Son of Man, but He was also Lord of the Sabbath, that because He was the one who would finally give people the fullest part of God's rest the final rest, that His rules trumped their rules. He's Lord of the Sabbath because He's the one who provides God's rest for those who trust in Him. Now, Matthew had dropped a clue for us. I read to you from Matthew chapter 12 in this scenario, but in the paragraph just prior to that, in the end of chapter 11, we read these words from Jesus. "'Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The ultimate Sabbath rest is found in Jesus. The religious leaders had so protected the temporary, in other words, the Sabbath day, which provides a foretaste of the true, deepest kind of rest that God can give, that they missed the value of the real thing, our true rest that comes from trusting in Jesus. In other words, the religious leaders gravitated towards the frustrating confinement of their traditions and away from the freedom supplied in Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. So, just to be clear, the bigger thing is the news that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and that He was going to change everything. And it was all about Him, not about rules. So, here's that big idea again. When Jesus refuses the man-made boxes we create, we gravitate either towards faith or frustration. Here's the third move. We saw the little thing. We saw that the little thing kept them from seeing the bigger thing. 
And the little thing blinded them from embracing God's restorative work. Go back to verse 8 and read to the end of this section. He announces, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Then it says, going on from that place, he went to their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Folks, this is a huge setup. They knew this guy was there. They're setting him up for this question. Here's Jesus' answer. He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a human being than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But notice what happens at the end. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Four things going on in there. First is the Sabbath setting. Notice how Jesus knew that they were looking to accuse him. Matthew calls this place their synagogue, as if Matthew, who's a Jew, is saying they had made this so much about their rules that this was no longer what the synagogue had originally been. And then we find the Sabbath question that they posed to Jesus. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath as they bring forward this man who's there very prominently with a malady that Jesus can straighten out. Jesus noted that all of them would rescue their own sheep if it fell into a pit on the Sabbath. He says, will you not lift it out? When I think of that example from Jesus, I think of one time when I was in high school, and my parents had been very, very strict about church. We always went to church. We had Sunday school. We had Sunday morning church. We came back for youth ministry in the afternoon. Then we had Sunday evening church. And for our family, we did all of that every week. And sometimes there was youth choir in there as well for an extra little detail. There was one particular Sunday or weekend that I remember where I had an aunt who lived near Detroit, and she had a terrible case of MS, multiple sclerosis. And she was in a bad way, and her house really needed repairs. And my folks drove out to, re to Detroit, and they worked all weekend long and then drove back on Monday. And I remember asking my dad, who never took a Sunday off from church, Dad, you know, how can you do this? And we, we were always taught that Sunday is the Lord's day. And he said, Paul, read about it. We were pulling the sheep out of the pit this weekend. Go look it up. I still go back to that whenever I read this passage, and I think that was the day that my parents were pulling the animal out of the pit that had fallen in. Of course you would do that to save a life and do good. Now, for anybody who had difficulty with what we did last Sunday, we met here early in the morning, and then we spread out, and we had 18 different work projects. We do this once a year, and then some people would, would, might be thinking, well, wait a minute, isn't this the, the, the holy day? Isn't this Sunday we're not supposed to work? Folks, it's the same principle. We were doing acts of mercy out in the community. We're pulling the sheep out of the pit. Jesus would approve and applaud just like he did on this particular day. He demonstrated that the Pharisees were more interested in keeping their own man-made rules than they were in the welfare of the people. After the setting and the Sabbath question comes this Sabbath day healing. Jesus declared that it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath, and then he told the man to stretch out his hand and instantly when he did so, his hand was restored. It's interesting. I looked at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of them used that particular verb to say that his hand was restored. In other words, brought back to the original condition, as good as new. 
And that's such an important word because so much of the work of Jesus is built around the idea of restoring, restoring people to grace, restoring people to the fullness of life, restoring people to fellowship with God the Father, restoring people to the the hope that we have in heaven. So much of his work centered on the work of restoration. And in doing so, Jesus not only healed the man's hand, he healed the Sabbath and returned it to a day of restoration. You see that? How beautiful that is. And then we see this unusual Sabbath reaction. The religious leaders went out and began plotting how they might kill Jesus. They realized right then that Jesus was not who they wanted him to be. And he was not going to fit into their box Their hardened hearts blinded them from seeing the miracle God had done through Jesus. And here's the interesting thing. Their theology held that it was okay to plot murder on the Sabbath if he didn't fit into their box. Wow. When Jesus refuses the man-made boxes we create, we gravitate either toward faith or towards frustration, and they chose frustration on that day. Now, here's the nasty question I want to ask on the heels of looking at that. We could leave it here and look at all that as an Old Testament history lesson, but we need to bring it into our day as well. What are the boxes that we create today? Let me just point out three. I had some other folks this morning who said, oh, you didn't talk about this box. Well, we do have to end the service at some time. We are capable of creating all kinds of boxes. Let me talk about three. The just be happy box This is the claim that Jesus doesn't really care about what we believe or how we live our lives. He just wants me to be happy. That's the main thing. Don't worry about your besetting sins or your controlling habits. Jesus just wants you to be happy. Don't get too serious about faith development. Leave that for the extremists. Just be happy. There's a problem with the be happy box. When you read the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that came from Jesus, We find this clash with the contemporary definitions of what happiness is. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember when we went through this during the summer? Or how about this one? Blessed are you when you are rejected or persecuted because of me. Here's another box. The Jesus is just like the others box. When people say that Christian faith has the same message as all the other major religions of the world, they're using this box and trying to fit Jesus into it. It's very common today. It's expressed in a number of different ways, like all roads lead to God. It doesn't matter which one you choose. All the major religions essentially teach the same thing. There are several problems with that box. Here's one. Jesus claimed to be one with God the Father. And if you've seen the Father, you've seen Him. If you've seen Him, you've seen the Father. Jesus claimed that no one comes to God the Father except through Him. And He claimed that He came to take away the sins of the world. And He told them He would go to the cross, and on the third day He would rise. And then all this came true. None of the other world religions or their leaders can do these things. And we need to be respectful enough to honestly look at those world religions and recognize their message is different from the central message of Christian faith. If Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of Man, and the Messiah, 
then his exclusive claims rule out all of the other religious approaches to God. He stands alone. Or there's the prosperity box. It's very popular today. The prosperity box teaches that if we trust in Jesus, he'll make all of our greatest dreams come true. You'll be wealthy and successful in everything that you do. I'm not going to name names or attack anybody else, but this message is extremely prominent today in North America. And it's attractive. Who wouldn't like to preach a gospel like that? I would love to be able to tell you with God's imprimatur on it that God's going to give you everything you ever dreamed of. Here's the problem. It didn't work that way for the initial followers of Jesus. Eleven of the twelve original disciples of Jesus lived difficult deaths being put to death because of their faith in Jesus. Sometimes he calls us to take up our cross and to deny ourselves. In fact, those commands apply to all of us who are trying to follow Jesus. He may make you wildly successful. He may just do that. He does that with some of us. And then he may not only make you wildly successful, but then turn around and ask you to use all the benefits that have come for doing something that furthers his cause. And for the joy of it, we realize that we put him first, knowing that the true rewards are what comes in the eternal state. We are all capable of turning Jesus into a genie in the bottle whose job is to give us whatever we want. But Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What he's after is the core of who you are down deep. And he wants to so fundamentally, thoroughly change that and transform that, that you become more like Jesus Christ. You still are designed to do what he designed you to do in this world and to use your gifts and and your talent and your ability and your personality. But he wants to make the core of who you are like Jesus. And that's what he's trying to do with all of us. When Jesus refuses the man-made boxes we create, we gravitate either toward faith or frustration. All right, I don't want to leave you just with bad news. Here's the good news. It comes in that passage just before when Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We can find true rest in Jesus. And every other pathway leads to a much heavier burden. It's just hard to see that at the beginning because of the packaging. Will you call out to him? Call to him to take your burden and to give you true rest, the deepest kind of rest that you can know that gives you peace in the midst of the storm. Rest from trying to pursue perfection. Rest from trying to save yourself. Rest from hiding your sins and your shame and covering it with clever packaging. Rest from trying to avoid admitting that your way isn't working all by itself. All those other pathways are simply cleverly packaged, man-made boxes. And Jesus says, come to me and you will find rest for your soul. I hope you'll continue on in this series as we are rediscovering Jesus over the next couple of months. I think it will be good for your soul. Thank you, God, for allowing us to gather here and worship today. I ask that you will continue to call us and draw us near. My prayer is for every person here that 
whether it's today or somewhere in the future, that we will all discover the rest that satisfies the soul's deepest longings in Jesus. Carry us through this day and through this week in that faith and that hope. In Jesus' name.